You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Disinformation about a radiation leak that wasn't. Another warning about TrickBot. The FBI says cybercrime cost victims more than $4.2 billion last year. Investigation and remediation of the solar winds and exchange server compromises continue. Cryptors become a commodity for malware developers. Robert M. Lee from Dragos on lessons from the recent Texas power outages. Our guest is Bob Shaker from Norton LifeLock looking at baddies targeting online gamers. And some people are looking for jobs in all the wrong places. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 18th, 2021. Poland's government has provisionally attributed a disinformation effort about a bogus radiation threat to Russia, the Washington Post reports. There were three channels for the propaganda. Websites of the National Atomic Energy Agency and the Health Ministry were compromised to briefly display fabricated claims of nuclear waste leaking into Poland from neighboring Lithuania and a Twitter account belonging to a journalist whose beat is Russia and Eastern Europe was also hijacked to push the same story. It is, of course, bogus. There's no radiation leak in Lithuania, and there's no corresponding threat to Poland. The Polish government representative who attributed the incident to Russia did so on grounds of a priori probability, but it's a pretty good guess as an argument to best explanation. Stanislaw Zarin, speaking for the head of Poland Security Services, told the Associated Press that, quote, The whole story looked like a typical Russian attempt to sow suspicion and division among Western allies, end quote. So Warsaw's betting on form, and it's not a sucker bet either. CISA, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, yesterday issued an alert on the resurgence of TrickBot, the Trojan that was identified back in 2016. The criminals using TrickBot are distributing it through highly targeted phishing emails. TrickBot was originally a banking Trojan, but it's now evolved into an adaptable multi-stage piece of malware. Once it's in the victim's systems, TrickBot is used to drop other malware, often either Ryuk or Conti ransomware, or to serve as an Emotet downloader. The alert, prepared in partnership with the FBI, contains an extensive list of signatures and an equally extensive list of recommended steps for mitigation. Speaking of the FBI, the FBI's Internet Crime Report for 2020 is out. Phishing retains its position as the leading form of criminal activity. Losses to all varieties of Internet crime were high, 
officially a bit north of $4.2 billion, and that's real money in anybody's book. The U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee yesterday pressed federal agency leaders for details on the scope of Holiday Bear's compromises of solar winds, the Hill reports. A parallel Senate inquiry suggests, according to CSO, that U.S. organizations are generally unprepared for such supply chain attacks. The Washington Post describes how the Senate Homeland Security Committee's investigation is expected to continue today with an inquiry into how such attacks might be prevented. Security firm Radware has added its warning to those in circulation about exploitation of Microsoft Exchange Server. Publishing its findings in IT Wire, the company says it assesses the threat as critical, and it doesn't think the threat is confined to any geographical region or economic sector. While it began, as is now generally known, as a Chinese government cyber espionage operation going after governments, pharmaceutical research and development organizations, and research institutions generally, including corporate research arms, the exploitation last week had clearly been added to the capabilities of criminal gangs. The crooks have added ransomware and cryptojacking to information theft, and their operations are indiscriminate, opportunistically hitting a range of sectors in most parts of the world. Tracking the way in which exchange server exploits have spread, Domain Tools' Joe Slowick tweeted an interesting graphic that summarizes the known and suspected threat actors involved in exchange server exploitation. It divides the actor's operation into initial exploitation, pre-disclosure share, immediate opportunistic exploitation, and lagging opportunistic exploitation. The lagging opportunistic exploitation is the activity Radware is talking about. Another point about lagging opportunistic exploitation is that it often follows the public release of a patch. Microsoft moved up its scheduled patch of the Exchange Server zero days when it became clear that Hafnium was exploiting them in an unusually restrained way, and the exploits quickly found their way into other hands. At the second session of the 7th Annual Virtual Cybersecurity Conference for Executives, hosted by Ancora and Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, which we attended yesterday, we heard Avi Rubin, technical director of the JHU Information Security Institute, discuss controls that can reduce an organization's risk. Timely patching, he rightly pointed out, is important, especially when it can be done before the vulnerability being fixed has been discovered and weaponized by the bad actors. But releasing a patch inevitably brings exploitation of unpatched systems in its train. The risk associated with a vulnerability rises significantly after a patch has been released, since the patch allows attackers to hone in on the vulnerability and create an exploit. Rubin said, quote, There's a race against time as to when the patch is distributed. If you don't apply the patch, you're much more vulnerable than before it was even patched in the first place. End quote. Patching isn't always as straightforward as we might think it, but all things being equal, better to patch sooner than later. You'll find our report of the conference's second session on our website. Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber Newberger outlined the federal response to the various campaigns, both criminal and state-directed, against vulnerable Microsoft Exchange server instances. She, too, emphasized the importance of patching, and stress the government's willingness to help the private sector, including small businesses, deal with the threat. Cryptors are now becoming a commodity in the cyber underworld's criminal markets. 
Two security companies have been devoting some research attention to cryptors, modules that help malware evade detection. Avast has released its study of Onion Cryptor, and Morphosec has an account of HCrypt, an active cryptor-as-a-service operation. And finally, there are a few more notes from the underground. Economic hardship has driven an influx of newbies into the dark web's underworld, a study by security firm Checkpoint finds. One depressing trend, it used to be the gangs who did most of the advertising on the criminal job boards. Now it's the job seekers. As Checkpoint writes, quote, Usually within the darknet market and hacking forums, it is the vendors that are offering openings to those who are interested to apply. These job opportunities are arranged in a format similar to eBay and Amazon, complete with features like advanced reputation, search, and shipping. End quote. However, it looks like the tables have turned. From the beginning of 2021, we noticed that there was an increase in the number of individuals taking the initiative to send out ads seeking work. In fact, we started observing 10 to 16 new ads being placed monthly in select hacking forums. End quote. Some of it's greed, some of it's desperation, but whatever's driving people to tell the hoods that they're willing to be recruited, it looks like a long-term shift in the underworld. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. (laughs) 
During this time of pandemic lockdown, my teenage son has been spending a lot of time online gaming. It has become the primary way he gets to socialize and hang out with his friends. That's all good, but of course there are security concerns. Those games aren't free, and we've got our credit card information filed into his account. Bob Shaker is head of gaming at Norton LifeLock and an avid gamer himself. He and his team recently published their Gaming and Cybercrime Study, and Bob Shaker joins us with the results. Well, I think we're beginning to see a positive shift in the way gamers think about security. But in this study that we did with the Harris Poll, and we did this across several countries, the U.S., U.K., Australia, Germany, New Zealand, we found there's still a gap between what gamers understand about the cyber risks that pertain to them and their likelihood of being attacked and what what really could happen. And what we thought was interesting about this was how many of them had already been hacked Hmm. um, and and yet still had that, uh, you know, somewhat of a gap in there. And that was over 2,000 gamers that we, we included. Well, what are some of the, the specific um, ways that gamers are, are targeted? What, what are their particular vulnerabilities? Gamers are targeted in, in a, a few different ways that really everybody is targeted, except that there's a bigger landscape when you're a gamer. So for fi- like a phishing attack or a fake website that's promising, you know, we're going to give you the best, newest, latest skins for this uh, new game, click here, and, you know, we'll hook you up. Those still exist. But with gamers, the landscape expands because we have access to tools that the average non-gamer doesn't use, like Discord or Twitch or, you know, some of the, the deeper Reddit boards about gaming, where because gamers have this uh, competitive nature in Discord, I can set up an entire server all about, you know, getting the latest and greatest cool things that you need for whatever game that I create the server about, and then start sending invitations. And because it's inherent in most gamers to trust Discord, they have a tendency to trust Discord servers. And Mm. it's, you know, with when you look at the gamer demographic, it's very broad. I mean, gamers can start, look at my kids. My kids started gaming when they were, you know, tiny, two, three years old, we'd be playing together. But gamers go all the way up into, you know, the 60s, 70s age range. But when you look at the the crux of gamers, you start getting into that 12 to 35 range and you get a lot of people who haven't experienced cyber attacks and get let in. So, you know, young people are trust trusting of Discord. They see a new Discord server invite, come their way, join. We're going to help you get the latest game skins. They join the server. They say, hey, get your friends to join. Here's a link. Click on this link to get the invite. The link downloads malicious software onto their machine. They then spread that link to their friends, and it it perpetuates through the, the ecosystem of their friend network. And that's, you know, that's one of those types of attacks that, isn't really different than a phishing attack, except they're taking advantage of the fact that gamers don't really believe that they'll be attacked, don't believe they have anything worth taking, and are susceptible to the ecosystem of playing games, which can be very costly and looking for advantages in in in-game items that they may not have to spend money for. That's Bob Shaker from Norton LifeLock. You can find their gaming and cybercrime study on their website.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's always great to have you back. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since um, the trouble that Texas had went down with the uh, the unprecedented cold temperatures and uh, the, the strains that that put on their ability to deliver electricity and, and uh, uh, various critical infrastructure things. And I wanted to check in with you to see what some of the, the broader things that you've been thinking about here in terms of are there lessons to be taken from this uh, when it comes to things like availability? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think in Texas specifically, it's too early to really be assigning blame and fully understand the event. Um, and, and I'm not saying that there won't be a blame and there won't be some considerations. But what I would coach everyone to look towards is when these types of things happen, whether it's a safety event in a chemical plant and the chemical safety board gets involved or a transportation issue or whatever, or in this case, electric, a number of different organizations do get involved and do really detailed studies of what exactly went wrong and what are what it was the cascading effects. And so we have the same thing in the New York blackouts and similar, and, you know, FERC came out um, and had a really detailed study of the blackouts um, in the early 2000s that led to some of the NERC SIP regulations and kind of regulatory standards. And so it's very common for our engineering and operations community to deeply dig in and get root cause analysis and share out those insights. And what I'm looking for is, what does this mean to the broader United States? Because we have a changing energy portfolio. We have um, aspects of climate change that are making impacts, undoubtedly. Um, but we also have a changing energy portfolio. What I mean by that is we're offloading a lot of uh, fossil fuels like coal. We're bringing up a lot of like natural gas. Natural gas takes up more energy, uh, is, is the source of more energy production in the United States now than ever before. Um, we're also thinking about bringing nuclear back some. We're also talking about green energy plans from the Biden administration and like distributed energy resources like solar farms and, and wind farms and similar that we bring online and electric vehicle chargers and so forth and so on and so on. So we have all of these massive changes happening all at once and in a relatively short amount of time. So it is appropriate to look at what went wrong and what can inform what we're doing in the future. And it's going to relate to grid stability and modernization. It's going to relate to better analytics and understanding of the data. It's going to relate to grid storage and battery storage. It's going to relate to um, not being over-dependent on any one energy resource. It's going to relate to the operators of the grid and kind of the reliability coordinators and what their role is. There's going to be a lot of, I think, good takeaways to learn. And one of the things I love about especially the electric community, is they deeply study these things and look at the studies and, and they are very thoughtful with applying lessons learned. You don't have to like go coach them to apply it. Um, they will all be digging into this and, and doing that. And so I, I think that's what I would, would recommend folks to look for is kind of the, the reports that come out of this. Um, and I would take away some confidence that the utilities themselves are most certainly going to be digging into these. What about things like climate change? I mean, I don't think it's it's unrealistic for folks to think that, um, you know, if my local Home Depot in Dallas isn't fully stocked up on snow shovels, you know, like that's an unreasonable thing. It's, you know, we have the historic uh, weather patterns, but we can't really rely on those the way we used to. It seems like the not only are things changing, but the rate of change is increasing as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, climate change, it's always funny. becomes like a political topic. I don't know why. I, there, there's no political topic here. Climate change is happening. End of story. If you don't like that, that's fine. Please go buy a diesel generator. Let's not talk about grid discussions. Um, but for, for the rest of us, 
climate change is happening and it's impactful. And it is not unreasonable that Texas did really not think they were going to get into extended like zero degree temperatures. Like that's not unreasonable. They didn't think about that. However, as we know, things are changing now. Like, is it reasonable to go forward and say, well, what kind of events do we want to prepare for? And, and if those kind of breaks take place, if it happens that we get to zero degrees Fahrenheit and we're not prepared for that, then what is the plan ahead of time to make sure that we know how to work across our utilities to make sure that we don't burn out transformers as recycling power so that recovery takes weeks longer than it should and things like that. So whether or not it's unreasonable to prepare, I think um, we can still prepare in some way. But I would actually say I don't, I don't think it's really reason, unreasonable to prepare at all. Uh, and there's already mechanisms in rate recovery and, and you know, resourcing the government, et cetera, to do what the utilities think is the right call. They, they obviously didn't think it was the right call in this case. We should understand their logic before we cast any blame yet. Once we understand their logic of why they thought that, then we should look to figure out what we can amend and do better in the next time. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. The proud bird with the golden tail. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.